This Change Cultivators podcast series was sponsored by CB4, Caterpillar Farm, and Currency. Welcome back uh, to our special series of podcasts where we are going deep on a very important and timely topic, and that is women at the intersection of leadership and change. And we are leveraging some very powerful women leaders who have chosen to document their thoughts in an upcoming book called You Should Smile More. How's that for a contentious title, ladies? (laughs) The book looks at how to dismantle gender bias in the workplace, and it hits stores in September of this year. The uh, authors of the book are, call themselves a band of sisters, and they are six executive-level women who bring a fresh take on how to dismantle gender bias in the workplace. These ladies have seen it all, from the bottom rung right up through to the C-suite, and now in their current positions in the boardroom. They have hands-on experience operating across 20-plus industries, from large corporations to startups and in many male-dominated industries, including, but not limited to, PepsiCo, ESPN, NFL, and Peloton. Awesome. Roz, so delighted to be back with you and three of the six sisters. I so enjoyed our discussion when we had all six of the sisters together in our last conversation, and I'm really looking forward to going a little bit deeper in a little more intimate setting. Yes. So without further ado, our three of the six band of sisters with us today is Laurie Marcus Nicholson and Katie Lacey. Welcome back, ladies. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. Fantastic. So I wanted to just kick off and ask you, you know, any thoughts from our last uh, conversation with the full band? We had a really interactive and exciting conversation setting up the book and, you know, just giving us a little bit of background on why you ladies came together to write the book and where it all started. So, you know, as we kick off any other thoughts uh, from from our previous conversation. I mean, I, I would say, I think we all had a really good time. I, I, that's one of the first times that we've all six of us been together and um, talking about it at once. We've done a lot of conversations with three, four or five of us, but having all six together and talking to you all and listening to your questions. And it was, it was really energizing and a lot of fun. Yeah. And what I would add to that, Roz, is every time we get together, I'm um, sort of struck by the fact that this came together so organically. You know, we didn't Mm -hmm. sit down to write a business plan and say, we want to write a book together. It happened so organically the way it started at a dinner. And then we kept talking about it and talking about it. And we all had that moment um, about where you know, maybe we could just use our power and our voices to actually do something about it. And then that evolved into a book. And so I just love the fact that it just came together. So just so in a, such a natural way. And I guess I would add, as I can tell through the conversations we've had that everyone is talking about this more with friends and family or whatever, because the fact stories are just flowing and you can just tell they've picked up other stories from other people that have weighed in because I think as we mentioned before, once you start talking about this, whether it's at a lunch or a dinner party or whatever, it's hard to get off the topic because everyone is so interested in like wanting to hear a story or they want to share their story. So it's one of these things. It's often a, a party stealer of the, of topic. <laughs> sometimes you're almost trying to get off a topic because you're like, oh, I didn't mean to hijack the conversation. To open the can but, of wounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I feel like that 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 dynamic continues. Yeah, and I love the fact that you know you guys are opening up a topic in a very you know net way where actually men and women can sit back and go aha or actually laugh at each other and smile and the book is not about complaining about gender bias in the workplace the book is about how to hit it head on together and actually address it in a really nice relaxed way so that's I just really get that feeling from from talking to you to ladies that it's a you know just wonderful to open it up in a light-hearted uh, open way I actually think that the thing that's the most satisfying for me is when you're in these conversations and someone says, you know, I was thinking about that and I now did something different because of this, or I almost said something, or I taught, you know, I corrected someone, you know, so I corrected someone that said something. So that to me, that's the, that's the most exciting thing to actually see it play out, which is, you know, are obviously our intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see it as like, I mean, we call it our proof of concept, right? That just by giving voice to some of these things and giving practical solutions to not just the women who are in the situations, mm-hmm. but to the men and the bystanders, um, it, it raises people's awareness and there's something they can do about it. And when we see those immediate results, 
or we hear about them, I guess, when people tell us it's, um, it just kind of further reinforces the idea that this plays a valuable role by talking about it, giving language, giving voice, and, you know, ideally starting to just remove the situations from happening. Yeah. So Katie, Laurie, and C, um, before we get into kind of breaking down some of the nuggets that are in the book, um, kind of towards your actionability thing that I think C, you had just talked about and how people say, I will act differently. You, you, we haven't read the book yet, obviously, because as Roz said at the kickoff, it's coming out in September. So um, we'll all be excited to read it when it comes out. Although you guys have teased us a little bit by showing us kind of the table of contents. So we know a little bit. And one of the interesting things we touched on in our last conversation was you've chosen to structure this into the topic of moments, right? Moments that can happen during day-to-day interactions, et cetera. And really kind of allow people to approach into the topic through this notions of moments. So before we kind of do a little bit of a deep dive into some of the specific chapter moments in the book, um, why moments? Why did you guys feel that was the, the, the pathway to put this out and make it more potentially engaging or actionable? So Katie, I see you nodding your head, so I'll come to you first. Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's what you said. There's a couple of things there in that it is, um, it's recognizable, it's actionable, there are specific um, there are specific tools that we can give on both sides. So that's that's certainly one key reason. Um, the other one is that these are the, these are the moments that add up, right? They're the things that just kind of like they 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 you're not going to bring it up when the first time it happens to you because it's going to feel small. It's going to feel petty. Um, they just feel small, but it's the sum of them that adds up and creates the culture. And so that's what, as we, as we were telling our stories and as we were talking to other women, as we were diving into the research, it really is, I mean, it's, it's pretty massive to try and tackle the whole topic mm-hmm. of gender bias, right? Like, and that's beyond our scope and ability, but identifying these moments that are the ones that just kind of, that wear you down. Um, gives us a recognizable place to start and it gives us um, practical tools. Very good. Yeah, and what I'd love to add to that is I think because they're such small moments, like Katie said, you kind of usually don't bring them up. You almost sound a little bit crazy if you bring them up because one at a time, they don't seem like a big deal. And companies spend a lot of time on like the big things, like what are we going to require in terms of like return to the office? How many days do we need to do that? You know, big laminated culture statements. Should we have sabbaticals, things like that? They, 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 spend, they tend to spend time on the big things. So as a result of the fact that no Nobody wants to talk about these little things because they seem little one at a time. There's also not a lot been written about it. And there's not a lot of practical tools and wisdom out there because little by little, they seem like just small things. And so by us aggregating them together, it gave us a little bit of a critical mass of something to talk about. And what we found was it became uh, really easy to sort of give it language, name it, uh, so that it made it even easier, we think, for people to uh, to talk about it and address it. Yes. And I think I think we're finding that like certain the, the chapter headings that we talked about really resonate, and then people start using the language. They're like, "Oh, great idea, Greg!" And they know that that's the concept when someone's you know restating it. So I think in some cases we can see which of the language really you know seems sticky. And I guess the other point I would make is. Um, that as much as yes, that any one of them seems small and in aggregation, they pile up. But in I think the other thing that's interesting in some of these, uh, even though each one of them might be small, a lot of the women thought, well, I'm the only one that noticed this, or I'm the only one that's doing this. And that's not the case. They, they think, you know, like one example of that is counting the room. A lot of people think I'm the only person that's going, okay, there's three women out of 41. I'm the only one that's in management and, and I'm the one doing that calculus in my head. And, and they find out everyone's counting the room. So, so men and women and bosses and everyone should realize that that's the case. And there's other examples where people are going to the women's lo- the you know bathroom and saying, can you believe this happened? And then the other people are like, oh my God. So I think in some cases, they anyone seems small, but I bet people might be surprised how many people are thinking about it and the reaction they might get even from those small moments. So the notion of moments allows 
any reader of this book to try to action it in a way that says it's about my day-to-day -day human interactions. It's about things that I need to be aware of and be attuned to and start to be able to adjust. Is that a fair way for like a reader to say, oh, that's why I want to kind of digest this book once it comes out. Is that a fair kind of connection you'd like our listeners to make to the book? Yeah. And the one thing that I would say is for the, the listeners or the readers of the book, think of yourselves that you could be one of any three people. You could be a woman in a situation where something is said to you. You could be a bystander in the room. And so the book talks about how you go from being a bystander to an ally, or you could be the boss, uh, be they, that a man, you know, any gender. And so it sort of speaks to you and meets you wherever you are. Um, Great. Fantastic. So I'm going to kick off with one of the chapters, which I love, and I feel like it's I'm very familiar with this chapter. So I'm going to pick this one out, and, and it's the chapter where you talk about at the table, but not in the conversation. And I'm sure many women can, can resonate with this. Um, why is it a moment that you chose to focus uh, on in the book? And you know, did this come about, are there any specific personal stories that either of you had that you said, this one has to be in the book? Yeah. So this is under a whole section in the book called What's Unsaid. And so what's unsaid can be really tricky. So one of the scenarios that sparked this, um, and I would say this probably resonated with everyone that we talked to, um, it's the whole notion of pre-meeting chit-chat. And what you forget at a senior level is that nobody tells you how to navigate meetings. You're expected to figure out. I mean, they tell you how to write a PowerPoint slide and things like that, but they don't talk to you on a meta level about the whole sort of what happens before, during, and after a meeting. And remember that meetings can be make or break places for anyone, but especially for women and especially for people of uh, color and underrepresented minorities. And, you know, there's a phrase that we started to use, which is that pre-meeting chit-chat, it's like the cocktail party of work. It can be really challenging to figure out, to figure out and to break in and to know what to say. When we started to do research on this one, um, you know, there's a ton of research out there on how men and women communicate, how they communicate at home, how they communicate in the workplace. And you can, you can dive deep into lots of different um, uh, studies on this. But what we found as we talked to women is that, and Roz, you said this at the beginning, that it is kind of a universal experience that, that feeling of being literally at the table and not sure how to get into the conversation. Um, and then when we talked to men about it, they were like, I mean, pretty much to a guy was like, huh, is that a thing? So there's just this lack of awareness that men are not feeling it and the women are all conscious of it. Um, and, you know, one of the stories that we got from a younger woman was, um, she was, she was working at a company. The company was not based in Dallas, but for some reason, a whole bunch of the guys in the company were from Dallas and they would start every meeting talking about something about Dallas, things that they liked, restaurants they loved, whatever. She'd be sitting there. And, and I mean, she proactively brought this up. She'd be sitting there unable to participate and, you know, just kind of put her head down and wait for the actual meeting to start but was savvy enough to realize that it put her at a disadvantage at the beginning of the meeting, because you just don't have that. You don't have that kind of easy repartee going. You've lost mm -hmm. that. Um, that you know, even, even that kind of, I, I, you know, just almost like implied credibility that you know what you're talking about before the meeting starts. And then you're in that, that, that feeling of, okay, when and how do I break in? And once you start, so it just brings up a lot of these awkward um moments where you're missing out yeah. and at, at Pepsi, this was, you know, the, and a, a lot of companies, but definitely at Pepsi, one of the, the pre-meeting chit chat was sports. And, you know, I think different, different people had different levels of expertise and experience around sports. You know, some of the sisters will say, this was, you know, my, this is my kind of core competency. I was fine. I played sports. I'm into sports. I can fit in just, just fine. For me, I was, you know, interested enough, but certainly not paying that much attention. But I decided early on that I was just going to study up. Um, so I started paying more attention. I would put on Sports Center in the morning and just make sure that I was able to break in and have a little bit of that chit chat. 
Um, that doesn't work for everybody. And it's not necessarily what we suggest that everyone do. It was, it was my tactic. Um, one of our sisters said that, you know, when it, our, our um, sister Dawn, when she was at the NFL, they would get to a level of sports knowledge that was way beyond her capability. So she found a useful tactic to pivot to the future. So instead of analyzing what already happened, you could say, okay, well, what do you think is going to happen next week when XYZ happens or something like that? So that's one way to break in in a situation is to start projecting forward where everybody's guess is a little bit more equal, I guess. Yeah. And I love that you use the word um, pivot there, Katie, you talked about pivoting to the future. So one of the things that I like to do is pivot to something that is more relevant to a broader audience. So, you know, the people that are talking about on a Monday morning staff meeting, the people that are talking about sports from the day before, I just want to be clear. I don't think they're doing it to leave me out. I don't think it's intentional. I think they're just talking about something that's on their mind that they enjoy, but um, part of, uh, you know, my strategy was always to pivot to something that made sense to a larger group. So if we were at Pepsi and people were talking about the football game the day before that I hadn't seen, I would say, no, I didn't see the game, but I heard that there was an unbelievable new commercial for Budweiser on it. It's all over Twitter. What did you guys think of the commercial? And, you know, just bring it back to advertising, which was something, you know, we're in the consumer products industry, a marketing and sales company, mm -hmm. certainly advertising was something that we talked about a lot. And pretty much everyone at the table had a point of view about advertising. So without anyone feeling like I stole the conversation from them, I just gently pivoted it to something that could be more inclusive. And the thing that I just want to say about this topic, like I said, I really believe in my heart of hearts that it's not, it wasn't something that people were doing to exclude me. That was just a byproduct of the mm -hmm. conversation. But I realized later as I got to be a little bit more senior that I was guilty of doing similar things, not necessarily about sports, but if you come in Monday morning and we're talking about succession or billions or something that I was watching, I'd be all over it and all over the conversation. And if somebody, you know, wasn't in the conversation that wasn't necessarily interesting to them and they had no way to do it. So again, a way to pivot to the future. If you're in that topic and people are talking about, you know, billions or squid games, you know, what you can just say is simply, um, no, I didn't see that, but now that it's over, what are you going to be watching? You know, yeah. my sister says I should watch X, Y, Z show. What do you think about that? What else are you all watching? And again, without even people realizing it, you've just brought everyone at the table into the conversation. Yeah. And I think a lot of um, women go in feeling left out. You know, you, it's normal to feel the situation. And as we've spoken, I've been in situations like that at boardroom tables. And I've said to the men privately, why do you do that? You know, mm -hmm. like, you know, that this is not an area and the feedback has been, well, we're just like, it's intimidating having a room full of men and one woman. Like the men are also like, I don't know what to do with this one woman in the room. So Laurie, I love what you're saying is actually as a woman, just take that ownership to know, you know, there's also fear from the other side. And actually, how do I make you comfortable? Like you say, yeah. how do I change the conversation so that a guy can say, oh, finally, you've given me a lifeline. I've got something to talk to you about. <laughs> I think it's just great after 20 years that Lori now knows that the NFL games happen on Sunday. So I think that's <laughs> I mean, don't do not tell her that they also happen on Thursday. Uh, baby <laughs> steps, baby steps, baby steps. Um, let, me, let, let me ask a little bit if I could. Um, I have a theory and, you know, a lot of the personality assessment stuff that you might have gone through your career kind of kind of types you one way. And I vividly remember one I did in my company years ago. It types you one way and then it kind of retypes you in times of stress or in times of rapid change or transformation. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about this particular moment, but probably some of the other ones, because our, our change cultivator listeners are all about what are the dynamics in times of rapid transformation and, and, and change in an organization? So does this get like turned up even more when, when, when there's like more pressure and there's more pressure to change? Is this particular one kind of become more, more of a, more of a barrier that people revert back to kind of more standard behaviors and they're not doing that. So how does this kind of flip into that leading and interacting among humans in times of transformational change? And does it take on a slightly different dynamic? You know, I would think it kind of amps up the pressure. I, I feel like when when there's time of change, when 
futures uncertainty, when resources feel like they might be shifting or scarce, there's that tendency to protect, right? To preserve and protect. I feel that um, people and groups can be less forthcoming. There can be less open sharing. And I mean, I'm, this has just been my own experience of what happens, but, um, and, and that kind of, that generosity of openness that you need in a situation like this is probably suppressed um, because of that protection. And it can be who's on the in, who's on the out. And it just, it puts everybody in a slightly more, you're competing for resources generally. Um, so I think it puts the onus then on leadership to really pay, be hypervigilant um, and make sure that that's not happening and, um, and, and bring people together in these moments where you have them physically together, make sure that you're bringing them together conversationally and, and otherwise. Mm -hmm. I think definitely if I was if I was going into a, a stressful meeting, I think I was much more you know, less likely to talk about, you know, Game of Thrones or the, the, the Patriots game and kind of be focused on just like the, the meeting that's going to happen, looking down at my notes, making sure everything was covered. So I feel like I would and I do think, you know, meetings happen so often. I mean, that, that they they're just, you know, obviously an ongoing thing throughout the day. So I think being in a more relaxed environment is going to make that make that easier. And and I think in regard to putting your head down, and I feel like in some cases, I had on both sides. Going back to the sports thing, I was very comfortable with talking about sports, so I was probably one of the ones keeping the, the conversation going over what happened when you know with the Eagles that evening. So that that sports ended up being a real asset for me throughout my entire career, and I think I built built you know uh, good rapport relationships because of that it wasn't I did what that wasn't my intention it just was a was a uh, outcome that happened kind of very naturally but I think that one uh, a piece of advice that I think that we all probably would agree on is regardless of what the conversation you, you got to get in involved in the pre pre-meeting chit chat don't mm -hmm. just sit there and think these guys are talking about Dallas or these guys are talking about the Patriots I'm going to do three more emails and two more voicemails and get things done and think you're putting your head down and, and being productive. Cause I think in the long run, you'll be more productive. If you're in the conversation, build those relationships that you, so you, you naturally flow into the conversation when the meeting does happen and you're, and you're more effective in the meeting versus thinking you're being productive in that 10 minutes ahead of time and then kind of go into it flat footed. Yeah. And I think that that applies to even around the meeting, like the importance of building the relationships before you've even come into the room you know, and I know obviously with one-off meetings, it's di difficult, but with people you deal with more regularly, it's actually taking the time to invest in the one-on-one -on -one relationships outside of the meeting room. So you can actually get to know each other more and you're less intimidating to each other, right? Because right. you sort of know each other a little bit more at a personal level, or at least have tried to discuss some of the content pre-meeting so that it's not a surprise. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's that moment also of pausing and investing a little bit of time even before the chit chat meeting. Yeah, we talk, we talk a lot about that. And that idea at Pepsi, we talk, called it, you know, you were pre-wiring. Mm -hmm. And it was something that, I mean, you just kind of had to observe and see it happening. Mm -hmm. and, and there were some masters of it. And when you realize like, oh, and I, I don't know that people new into the workplace realize that you probably don't want anybody at the meeting table hearing something for the first time, no. right? There's, and that there's this, you know, kind of like if you're going to have some sort of ta-da of new information, it, it's, it just, I, I, practically I've never seen it work out well that way. No. So, so that feeling, understanding those dynamics ahead of time is just, they tend to be unspoken rules and, yeah. Um, and you either need to be a really good observer or you need to have somebody who is a good coach who, who shows you and tells you how to do it. Yeah. I have a client who uses an expression that I love. She says surprises are for birthday parties. Uh, <laughs> I love that. It's so true. <laughs> for business meetings. But, you know, two things. One is, Patrick, I just want to say thank you for talking about the Hogan assessment as part of this podcast, <laughs> executive coaching. And I, we use that as a tool a lot with our clients about uh, sort of characteristics of people and how they might show up in times of extreme fatigue or in times of stress. And I think it's something really to be aware of, but just to amplify something that Katie said, I think um, 
what's critical for people to understand is the pre-wiring of the meeting in terms of like the subject matter, right? So making sure you're, you know, you're sort of getting people um, knowledgeable and aligned, you know, understanding what questions might come out. So there's sort of the pre-wiring on the topics, but I think sometimes what people miss, especially women is the pre-wiring on the relationship. So investing in the people, getting to know each other a little bit, building up an element of trust because no matter how well run a business is and no matter how pre-wired you get everybody, there's going to be, you know, times where things are going to get contentious and you're going to have some, you know, some fist pounding on the table and you're going to, you know, disagree about things. And so to the extent that there's some kind of, you know, coins in the bank about the relationship and some trust, I think it helps the business conversations go much more smoothly. Yeah. And let me, let me just, cause I love this discussion. Let me close out one thing. So what's the role of the leader and you guys are bringing it right into that moment of the meeting. Mm-hmm. Is there one pointed thing that you would say to a leader? And I don't know if it matters if it's a male leader or a female leader. I don't know if it matters. What is one thing that a leader should do under this topic of not in the conversation that you need to do to make sure that we're countering this? Is there one thing that you would say, look, a leader needs to do this thing. That's your role in helping to overcome the barrier that this moment might present. Well, well I, there's one thing that for sure a leader can do, which I think is, is, is get to the meeting early. Don't be the last one in the meeting. If they're, sometimes they, they come in late and that the meeting immediately starts and they have no idea what's been happening for the last you know, five, 10 minutes. So they have no idea like, oh, they're always talking about Dallas or you know, there's two guys dominating the conversation or three women, dom- or whatever the case may be. So getting there early, can not only can they observe it, but they can help bring up topics that are more inclusive or pull people into it and kind of be a good, uh, you know, a role model. Cool. And I'll just yeah. add to that. One thing um, a leader should always do um, is yes, you have to to focus on the content. Yes, you have to focus on the decisions being made and the content being presented. But as a leader, you can do two things at once. And one of the things that you need to do to get a little bit meta is you need to pay attention to the dynamics of the meeting and not just what's being said in terms of, you know, the margin is this or the EBITDA is this, or it's going to cost this, or we're going to save that, but pay attention to the dynamics, pay attention to who's sitting where, who's saying what to whom, who gets to talk, who gets interrupted. You will learn as much about your organization um, from the dynamics of a meeting that you would as much as you will about uh, just the content of the meeting. Yeah. And that's a great practical tip. And see, I love what you were saying is get to the meeting early. I think there's so much in that because if you get to the meeting late, first of all, you miss, you know, a lot of the preacher chat you spoke about, you're more flustered, you're right. behind everybody else by trying to get regrouped and all of that. So you're just on the back foot from, from mm-hmm. you know, the, the moment you walk in there on every single level. Yeah. So it's such a small little thing, but I think it makes such a huge difference. I love the fact that you brought that up. And I'm going to stay with you now, see, because there's a topic I know you love. I mean, it's another one of the chapters in your book, and that is um, the chapter where you talk about who is the new girl? Um, I, I want to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about what's the story behind that. Um, I know all the ladies on the podcast are going, goodness, are people still using that phrase? <laughs> well, th- this chapter is kind of about gendered language in general, but it's, it's, it's you know, that one is, is, is a particular example that <laughs> makes my head like blow off. Um, and you hear it, you know, you, you'd be surprised how often you hear it, even though you think like, who's, you know, you said you, you probably aren't. People will say, have you met the new girl in accounting? We just hired a new girl out of Harvard. I mean, it gets used all the time. And when we hear this every day, all the time, it just almost becomes wallpaper and we just kind of start accepting it. And we all just, we, you know, many people use it themselves. But I think it's this, this concept of if you, if you think our male colleagues who think of their female colleagues as girls will then think of them like when they have to think, who are we putting up? Who's the next CEO candidate? And then they're going to put someone on that list. I think we're kidding ourselves. So I think kind of being dismissed as a bunch of girls is, is, is very condescending. And I think it's, it's language of that you say, on you know, have you, you, you know, you would not say we just hired a new boy out of, out of, out of Yale. I think there's a real, you know, that would, that would not happen. Yeah. And this is one where, again, there's a lot of research out there. Um, and what the research tells you is that this gendered wording maintains institutional inequity. 
And it, this again can probably feel like the, oh, what's the big deal? Word here, word there, but these words do add up and the words matter. And I love this idea that language sets the stage for how we think, right? That it's not, it, it works both ways. Yes, how we think is gonna get manifested in how we speak, but how we speak also has a, a relationship back to how we think. So if we're gonna to continue to use these gendered words, then we're gonna to continue to have these subtle reinforce, reinforcements in how we think. Um, and if you start listening, this gendered language is everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like man up, that guy, that's a really ballsy move that you did. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the definition of success in Silicon Valley, two guys in a garage. Um, and then, you, you know, you hear all those and you're like, okay, that's just fine. That just came up. But then the flip side, and this is one when C's head explodes over um, the use of the term girl, when I've, and I had never thought about this until we started doing this work, but now I hear it. The idea that, okay, we need this product to be simple enough for your mom to use. And that idea is about as insulting as it gets mm -hmm. when you really think about it, right? So why is mom the definition of she needs it to be really basic and simple? So we've accepted some of this language and we all just kind of use it and think it without questioning it. But once you start to hear it, um, it really it really starts to, um, to amplify and multiply in your brain. Um, and, and when we talked to the younger women, I mean, we definitely heard uh, when you talked about girl, there's especially when you're younger, you know, you talk about your, you're going out with the girls, you're doing things like that. So, so the, the younger women were not as, um, they were not as triggered by that word in some of them. Um, but they definitely reinforced that a lot of this language still happens. And, and one example was a woman, she's a vet. Um, she works for a pet food company. So she's in a corporate setting. Um, she's got lots of colleagues. She's got she works with a male vet who everybody calls, you know, Dr. Jones, uh, and then they call her Beth. Um, and if they call her by her title, they call her Dr. Beth. And again, I, I'm going to guess this is unconscious by 99% of the people doing it, but it's something that she's noticed. And you can imagine that it starts to add up over time. Um, and one of the things that we talk about with this is it's, you know, if you see something, if you get an email or you see something in writing that uses gendered language that feels inappropriate, you can you could print it out, you could circle it, I could bring it into your office and say, hey, you might not have realized this, but this word, but it's those on the in the moment on the spot. How mm -hmm. do you how do you how do you stop and correct that? That can be that can be a real challenge. And that's one of the things that we dove into as well. Yeah, and it's interesting on this one. So this is one where it's not, you know, it's typically not where somebody's saying, hey, Lori, you're a nice girl. You know, it's not, you're typically an ally in this situation, right? You're a bystander and somebody will say, hey, did you meet the new girl in accounting? So this is a good, a good example in a chapter where we try and, uh, you know, recommend some different approaches of how you can do it. So, you know, one is just a little bit of humor. So when someone says, did you meet the new girl in accounting? You could say, oh, did I meet the new woman in accounting? And then just pause for effect and everyone hears it. But, you know, not every moment is meant to be, you know, kind of a teaching moment like that. So sometimes, um, you know, people, if it's with people, you know, well, and you can use humor, you'll just say, like C said before, wait, did I meet the new girl in accounting? Wait, say that sentence again, except say boy. And then everyone laughs because they can't even do it. They can't say aloud. Did you meet the new boy in accounting who just came mm -hmm. here from, you know, Stanford business school? You would never say that. It just sounds so strange. Um, but then the one that I like to do, it's sort of, it's the pivot and amplify. So I'll say, um, oh, did I meet the new woman in accounting? Yes, I've met Tess. She's excellent. You know, she comes from us from KPMG. I've been in several meetings with her. She has a real expertise in international tax law. I think she's a great hire and she's going to be excellent. So something that started out that I might have heard it a little bit as an unintended slight, I will use that as an opportunity to give two or three, you know, amplifications to that particular person. And so people will not be thinking of her as this like little girl in a rocking chair. They yeah, will think good. of her as this super talented 
executive. And there's nothing worse than being politely put back in your box, right? And re- <laughs> realizing you've made a mistake and thanking the person for not actually calling you out, but the message is clear. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think, you know, if if the moment, the flip side is, is like, you don't want to make somebody get defensive either, right? No. So, so there's always the opportunity to pull somebody aside afterwards mm-hmm. and lead with the I know you didn't intend for this ex- to, to have said this or to have implied this, but I just wanted you to know that this is how it came off and it might be something to be aware of in the future. So I, I think that that kind of gentle pull aside afterwards can, can generally work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think for, for the bosses, obviously don't, don't do your fetty behavior yourself. And then if someone does do it, obviously the, some of the techniques that Lori and, and Katie just talked about is like, you know, gently do those and just be a good, you know, model of behavior that you want to, to be replicated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we touched on two of the moments that you guys have kind of crystallized for people in this book, um, you know, at the table, not in the conversation and the notion of the new girl. Um, there's another chapter that breaks down another moment about the good soldier. Who wants to kind of give us the backstory to that and exactly what that means? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll take that one. I, this is, this was an interesting one for us to talk about. And it, it, it has, I think it's become more relevant recently as there has been more of a, um, more of an effort to, um, especially from diversity and inclusion, there's creation of lots of groups and task forces. So there's lots of volunteer opportunities or others for, for people to participate in to help further and improve the culture of a company. Um, and what happens is that a lot of women and people of color are spending a lot of hours on things like this because that's who's going to be put on these task forces generally. But it doesn't always get valued when it comes to salary and promotion. Um, and so you might be doing all that while other people are focused on the, the activities that, that drive their own advancement. So you're helping the company, but it can, in certain situations, be a sacrifice to your own career. And you know, there was a study that we were reading in higher education that showed that Black and Hispanic college fa- faculty spent twice as much time as their white counterparts on mentoring, recruiting, serving on task forces, and um, you know, kind of otherwise helping improve the diversity. And while that was very helpful to the people that they were bringing in and to their institutions, it gave them less time to focus on publishing, which is what they need to advance in their careers. Um, This is something that, you know, I realized more in retrospect. I wish I had realized it more in the moment. But when I was at ESPN, I had um, a woman on my team who was she was on every task force. We put her on every task force that there was. And some of them were were important business driving task force, but there's a lot of project work that can happen Mm. where it's a little bit less direct and you're not gonna get a lot of credit. And she was very talented. She had a lot of respect. She was very collegial. She knew a lot, she could add a ton of value, but at promotion times and when when we were doing reviews, you know, rarely does this stuff get then memorialized in your review and and added on to um, reasons for advancement or promotion. So I, it's just, it's one of those things that I wish I had been more aware of at the time, because I think I probably would have been a better advocate to spread the work a little bit more or get her more credit for having done what she was doing. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll play play off this notion of, of awareness. And, and there's a lot of um, scenarios in the book that, especially for leaders, like half the battle is just being aware of this. Because once you're aware that it exists, you know, you can do something about it. And I know for me, there was a time I was at PepsiCo and I got, um, I was asked to lead our United Way effort, which we did a very big United Way thing every year. And, you know, they they make it like, it's such a big deal. Like it's such an honor, like you're winning an award. And I was actually out on a market tour when I got the call and one of my colleagues looks at me and it was the first time I'd heard this word. He said, Ooh, you've been voluntold. And so <laughs> I, I love that expression. 
expression because I, what I felt like in hindsight was you don't need to make a, like a big deal of this. Somebody has to do it every year. There's N number of senior vice presidents in our Westchester location. Every year, one of them is going to get picked uh, to run this. And it was a huge amount of work. I mean, it was probably 20, 30 hours worth of work for probably six or eight weeks, you know, in addition to your current job. So I think there's just sometimes just being aware of it, that at some point you're going to have to do, you know, one of these or so. But I think the part that I got savvy about after the fact, um, and we were doing some research in the book, this came forward for me, which is sometimes I was, quote unquote, voluntold to have uncomfortable conversations that men didn't want to have. So I had a colleague in my department, she was more junior than I, but she didn't work for me. She worked for my boss and she wore, I mean, this was, you know, a long time ago, she wore uh, skirts that were too short. And the, you know, the men in the department felt like you can't, I know it's a podcast, you can't see, I'm doing the air quotes, but it's like, oh, it would be (laughs) comfortable for her, uncomfortable for her her if one of her male colleagues were to have the conversation with her. So they asked me to do it. And you might say, well, that's, Lori, why are you making a big deal out of this? But, you know, you work in a big company, you're aware of what you say matters. And so I thought about it. Then I went to HR and I said, this is the way I was going to address it. Do you th- I don't want to make her feel defensive. I don't want to put the company in peril. Is this okay? Then you have the conversation, then you follow up with her boss and you follow up with HR. And, you know, back to Katie's point, that's ours that I'm not spending doing business development or something that's going to drive the, you know, sales and profitability of the company. So I think it's just one of these things, again, like I said, pay attention. If you're the leader, pay attention to dynamics and who you're asking to do what, and don't keep asking women to do the work that, you know, that it would be quote unquote, uncomfortable for other people uh, to do. Women just in some cases need to just say no and don't don't do it when they're asked. Just say you know what I love to, but I've got X Y Z. I get this big presentation or talk the very you know the business objectives that are going to be you know compromised or late because of this this effort. Uh, and then also when they, if they ask for a volunteer and say hey who wants to do this, I feel like women are more likely when there's that uncomfortable silence to be like well raise their hand. Don't don't volunteer. So I mean, you have to pick your battles and spots. You can't always say say um, you can't always say no, but it doesn't always have to be an automatic automatic yes. In, in, in my book, um, so one of those when we talk about this whole the good soldier thing, one of my favorite stories that I I, I learned um, when I was my first job out of graduate school. I can remember exactly where I was standing at waiting for this elevator. And my boss told me about the good goat story because I was being put on a lot of task force and for a variety of things. And he said that the, he said the good goat, when a farmer is trying to get to the top of the hill, it's safer to bet on adding one more salad to a good goat. One that's already carrying a, a big load uh, versus added that salad to an average goat, even if that average goat is carrying less. So when the, you know, so when the boss has to delegate assignments, they just can tend to keep on adding more and more to the good goat, even if overburdened. Um, so I think as bosses, we have to make sure that we don't always, you know, what Katie said, we don't always burden the same people, the same high performing employees, especially if these are non-critical volunteer work, that's more office housework that really is never going to be reflected in there. And, I, and so I feel like I got a lot of that dumped on me throughout my career. And I'm sure I was guilty of taking the person that I knew was an automatic, was going to get it done, no question to ask, and having, you know, overburdening other people as well. So I yeah. think we have to pay attention to that. Yeah, it's kind of ask a busy person to get something done. Because right? exactly. you know it's going to exactly. be. Although I just yeah. love saying "good goat," I think that, <laughs> good goat. That's definitely a better twist. I, hear I love that. I love that story. <laughs> so, so ladies, I want to ask you a little bit of a left field question, and I, I don't know if it's addressed in your book, but what do you feel about gender bias within the female group? So, okay, we've so gender bias, you know, with women. So. You've spoken about um, the volunteer example and saying, you know, there's certain women that sort of gets, you know, lots done and and the review time comes and you don't necessarily look back and reward. You're talking about, you know, maybe a slightly more collegiate approach that women have, you know, they're more about bringing everybody along, you know, versus getting to the target. Um, Do you think as women, sometimes we also fall into a bit of gender bias where we go, well, hang on, as women, 
we've also been a little bit programmed and sometimes we've also got to call ourselves out against that sometimes because you go, well, I've had to work so hard in this man's world. And so I've in a way sometimes also fall short with some of the things that I feel are applied to me. I mean, it's, do you know where I'm going with it? I'd just be interested yeah. in, in your view. I mean, we're, we're cultured the same way, right? I mean, we grew up in, with the same influences, especially, you know, those of us who grew up with some of the influences of many decades ago. I'm, I'm not, I think, I do think it's different now, most likely for younger women and how they are conditioned more in school and sports and things like that than it may have been for us. But we mm -hmm. definitely, we give examples in the book. I mean, um, there's one I can remember of being, um, you know, and this is a, a an unfortunate fact of corporate America, as I remember being in meetings where it's like, okay, we need to do a round of layoffs and you're coming up with who the people are. And I can distinctly remember having the reaction of, you know, for a guy that like, cause I know that he's, you know, He's got three kids. He's the sole breadwinner. And that fact and that mm. that idea entered my head. Um, and it didn't enter my head as quickly for the woman who had three kids. And that, and I was mad at myself for that. Mm. But it it came in there. Um, so I think we have and we all have examples of of that. I think it's um, it's just something that we have to also, and especially as you rise up, I mean, seize, or I think Lori said it, the idea of being at the table in the conversation, you forget what it's like sometimes when you've gotten to a senior level, even as a woman, um, mm -hmm. you're conscious of your own feeling, it, you know, kind of out of the loop when you're in a board meeting or things like that, but you sometimes forget. So it's a good reminder for everybody. Mm -hmm. I think I, the ones that comes to mind that I think I was been guilty of, of being in people planning meetings with with uh, a bunch of people and we're trying to figure out who's the slate of candidates for a, a given job that might be out of town and then someone says so and so's you know you know hey Sue's married to a guy in finance and they have a couple of kids she'll never move so we don't put her on the slate and we would never do the opposite for her husband who obviously also has a wife that, that works and he has two kids I feel like that would be more likely to um, you know, I feel like I feel like I was in the room when some of those conversations happened and didn't didn't stop yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah, which were I which was clearly now 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 I would. Yeah, yeah. and so Ross, I, I think a couple of things. One is I think what Katie and C said is exactly right. So it's not like because we're women, we're like always on our game and we never make these mistakes. Like I feel like many times we make the same mistakes uh, you know, that, that men make, I mean, unconsciously, like the example, Katie said, like, we just, we, and sometimes we catch ourselves and sometimes we don't. And I know I've been trying, you know, we're all on a learning journey. Um, colleague, um, of ours, uh, has a, someone I know professionally has a podcast, um, uh, where she talks about, uh, the bias that happens with women of color. And I listen to it every week and I find myself saying, Oh, have I, have I done that? Have I kind of stepped in it again? And it's a really good example of, I was never doing that intentionally. Um, but so I think for all of us, if you take the attitude of like, we're all learning, we're all growing. Um, and every day you should just learn a little bit more. So I think, yes, Roz, I think we, as women definitely make a lot of the mistakes that we talk about in the book. And as we get more senior, we've probably made more of them. I think the other part, I don't know if it was in your question or not, which is I can remember growing up at Pepsi when we started the Women's Resource Network and there were women who didn't want to have anything to do with it. I mean, they sort of had this attitude mm -hmm. a little bit unsaid, which is they got there, nobody helped them. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't necessarily have to, you know, do things to help other people. And there are, I think a small, but there are definitely women out there who sort of like being the most senior woman. They mm -hmm. like that it's them and a bunch of guys and it sort of, you know, they stand out. 
I like to believe that that group is getting smaller and smaller and smaller every day and more and more women are, you know, sort of, you know, reaching out and trying to help other women get there, whether it's rising up in the ranks in corporate America, getting more funding in venture capital, you know, more women on boards. I, I believe that it's becoming the exception rather than the rule that people are saying, I got here on my own, you know, you figured it out. Yeah. And I think it comes down to empathy, right? You know, we've been chatting to a lot of guests. We just interviewed a guy from Google, fantastic guy. And he was saying they're speaking to recruiters more. And the recruiters are saying, we want more soft skills in yeah. leadership positions. Like, yeah. And how do you demonstrate a soft skill on a resume or CV? You know, and they were saying one of the things they really, really need from candidates now is empathy. Yes. You know, are you an empathetic leader? And I think it, mm-hmm. it comes to this whole thing of bias, be it gender, level, rank, disability, whatever it is. It's it's the leaders of the future need to be far more empathetic than they have been in the past. Mm-hmm. So, ladies, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up our very exciting conversation. I wish I could speak forever. And Patrick and I always feel like our sessions are too short. But I just want to close off with with one uh, last question to you. You talk about the concept of man sentence in the book tell us a bit about that sounds intriguing i'll start on that one this will this is this this is this concept of a lot of the you know most workplace rewards in the sense of skew mail and 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 we always joke that um we all have like 40 extra large golf shirts that we've been given in our closet or you know at this point they're probably a goodwill and i always thought it was funny that women are so used to getting men's golf shirts that they don't even, doesn't even seem unusual anymore. The, the, a lot of times the reaction is, oh, my husband, my father is gonna love this. Um, or some people oh, think it's, gonna, it's yeah. gonna go right to the goodwill pile. But the concept that you have, a, a, you're, you're getting an incentive and you know that the, the incentive was designed for a man, sized for a man, intended for a man, is just not very motivating. <laughs> no. No. I, I, I'm feeling I mean, all those, all like those. The, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying I'm feeling all those, you know, quarterly meetings where you get these t-shirts and you're like, okay, fabulous. <laughs> pajamas, exactly. Pajamas, yes, perfect pajamas. <laughs> but a golf shirt, you can't sleep in a golf no, shirt. No, scratchy pajamas. <laughs> well, and, and C has a great way, I think, to, to hit this home, right? The whole idea of like, what, what would the opposite look like? Right. right, right. You would like imagine the guys opening up the bag and they're like, "Oh, it's an extra small pair of yoga pants." I mean, like that would just <laughs> never in a trillion years would that happen. But the the opposite happens every day without people even thinking about it. Right. I love that. So I'm gonna put away my extra small yoga pants after <laughs> that comment. See, but I totally get it. <laughs> no, I think it's really it's it's such an interesting way you guys say it. You know, man incentives, right? Are you really motivating guys? Back to where we started in the start of this conversation. It's about human to human interaction and mm-hmm. trying to make sure we're treating people as other humans, not as a type of human or that kind of thing. And I I love the candor that you guys bring to the discussion. It's not about attacking. It's not about, you know, it, you know, saying it's an us versus them thing. It's a something is missing if we're not actually connecting and activating against this particular thing that's making us less successful as teams and making us less successful as leaders as we take our team. So um, I, as Ross said, it's always unfortunate we have to end our conversations. Um, but I think the, the little sneak peek you gave us into three of the moments that you guys have really spent the time and done the work to think through, look at the research, really going to be insightful for people when they get their hands on the book. So the books comes out in September. Everybody should pre-order as soon as they get a chance to do that to make sure that they they can. We'll drop a link in the show notes to make sure that you can follow the sisters, follow them on LinkedIn, follow them on their website as they kind of go through this journey. Um, but thank you for the three of you for being part of our conversation today. Catch all the episodes of Breaking Barriers with hosts Rosin Boy and Patrick Fitzmaurice chatting to the Band of Sisters, six experienced C-suite women leaders, sharing their insight and experience on creating inclusive organizational cultures.